Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego. And I'm joined, as always, by managing editor Andrea Lopez Villafaña. What's up, Lopez? Hey, how's it going? Well, <laughs> it's fine. It's okay. A lot of disruption. The pandemic is uh, is got one last gasp, and it's and it's uh, now taken our Andrew Keats. He's not sick, but uh, but the disruptions of the pandemic are now disrupting his life as they are for all of us so uh i feel great thanks i actually heard from several people um that uh, they were worried about me but we're good family's okay but uh i don't know if they'll ever get back to school i want them to go back to school andrea can they go back to school please? yes i say send them back to school <laughs> yeah there's a lot of rules a lot of tests all kinds of stuff it is wild out there january go home you are drunk coming up on the show this week the state of the city the mayor acknowledged some big problems in his speech and none bigger than or harder than homelessness we'll talk about what he said it was pretty interesting and a controversial word used by an elected official in chula vista stirred up trouble and cost the city sixteen thousand dollars to investigate We'll get into that cheese and explain why it's controversial. We are a couple of chismosas, aren't we? Chos- <laughs> chismosos. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's right. Chismosos. <laughs> and loyal podcast listeners heard me promise to do a deeper story on how the city came to own the land that it owns in the sports arena midway area. I did that. It actually really consumed a couple of weeks for me, and I've been obsessed ever since. And now we can talk about the story that I did write, Andrea. Uh, that uh, that was that was a tough one. I appreciate your help and, and edits. Yeah, it was great. I th- I think it turned out great. Lots of great feedback too. All right, we'll talk about that and more coming up. All 
All right, let's, let's just briefly talk about this. The numbers are spiking. You know, the, the numbers of cases, Andrea, have gotten so high with this Omicron variant, with the, with the COVID-19, that they've they, they screwed up all of the graphs of cases. You know, like the, the, it would show like the cases going up in, in you know, last summer and then last, uh, you know, Christmas time and then the Delta surge. And now the numbers are so high with cases that, that those all look like little tiny little hills <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead of mountains. So, uh, but, you know, we're not supposed to look at cases anymore, but, uh, but hospitalizations seem to be holding a little bit. They're, they're definitely going up, but uh, we're all um, just waiting to see how these numbers turn out. They projected that they're going to get higher than they were last year at this time. Um, and every, every entity you can think of, daycares, schools, firefighters, cops, just like you guys discussed last week, they're all disrupted by this stuff. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, you know, Andy and I mentioned it last week, and it's been something that we've kind of talked about, you know, throughout like these last couple of weeks, but never have we known so many people who have had it, you know, and I've just been like reaching out to friends and checking in on them and same for them. Like they know so many people that, you know, either have COVID or recently got COVID and that didn't happen to me the first year. Like I could think of maybe two people that I knew that got COVID back in 2020. Yeah, and they all had some kind of story like, oh, I went to a karaoke bar bar, and like, you know, like like licked the the counters or something. You know, it's, it's <laughs> oh, all, please don't do and, that. Just yeah, no. <laughs> but um, uh, but now it's just yeah, it is everywhere. It's it's wild. I think one of the untold stories, Andrea, is uh, this how the county for for and the city and the state really for so long updated us every day about every move they were making right like it was just like a constant stream of communication about the decisions they were making right and now they clearly made the decision they didn't put out a press release or a press conference about it but they clearly made the decision that they were going to let this wave come to shore and wreak whatever it would wreak, right? Like they, that was like a, you know, whether it's something they did a resolution about or a press release about, that's what they decided. And that's what we're all, yeah. I mean, there is the, the mask mandate, which is, you know, enforced in different levels in different places, but uh, overwhelmingly, like they just let it hit and, and that's what we're dealing with, right? Yeah, I mean, w- certainly we didn't have a, press conference to tell us that they were going to take this approach but you know just from understanding how like government officials work and how these kinds of things work um clearly shows that you know that that's the approach that they're taking now and even i would say like the mask mandate has been interesting because there's been a couple times i've been at stores and i still see people without their masks and i don't necessarily see too many stores kind of um, enforcing it and actually yesterday I walked into a subway and I totally forgot my mask and no one told me anything but I just you know I ran back to my car and I grabbed it because I felt so weird yeah. but um, yeah it's it's super interesting I mean I guess it kind of just feels like this is life and we're gonna just live with COVID now yeah and we're we're in like this the middle of this like awkward transition right we're between COVID as this uh, virus that must be contained and to contain it, you have to have all these different things, constraints and contact tracing and 
restrictions and, and different things that go on. Uh, and, then, and then this next phase, which they're clearly trying to head toward, which is that COVID is another respiratory disease that we have to deal with as humans. And, uh, and so as such, you, you'll, have, you'll be sick maybe a little bit, and, and then you'll go back to whatever you do with your life. And, and that transition phase is what we're in the middle of because they're letting the latter part happen. This, this, it's a respiratory disease, just do it. But the rules around it are so harsh, still they haven't transitioned that part. The rules are still a few months old in the other part of, the, of this transition. And so, you know, this, it's, like, it's like it's not caught up. And so, yeah, they might be letting it go, but the, but the, uh, the labor shortages, those rules are causing the, the, the school daycare issues. It's just it's wild. So uh, we'll see how they make it uh, happen over the next few months. And, and just a note, we should me- mention this, I think, too. Andrea, we, one of the most prominent voices for the 2020 on the virus and on, on vaccines uh, was uh, County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher and, uh, and, of course, his wife, Lorena Gonzalez. She's an assemblywoman and was at the forefront of a lot of very tense discussions. Uh, their house uh, uh, experienced a fire, and I think all of us are a little bit jarred by what that might mean or could mean. Now, we, we, we can't make any assumptions now about what's going on, uh, but, boy, I hope it's not uh, a, uh, an act of violence because that's just a chapter I'm not sure we want to enter into. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of countries that deal with political violence quite often, uh, you know, just very nearby. In, in Mexico, it's quite common. But if we've entered a chapter of, of violence like that, uh, uh, that's not uh, not something to be very enthused about. So um, hoping and um, and thinking about that. Hopefully, it's a, a random experience, but uh, but real tragic. So they uh, uh, their house started on fire at 4 a.m. and they were able to get out. But that was just jarring news to wake up to. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad they're they're all safe. Um, I will say, uh, Lorena's tweet made me laugh. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but she mentioned no. like, "Don't sleep in something that you know you wouldn't be okay with standing on the sidewalk." Yeah, I, <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> it definitely. I think about that. Yeah, it definitely inspired like my pajama options last night. I, <laughs> I just got me thinking. I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of a good point. Yeah, it is. At least have them handy. It's been a year since Mayor Todd Gloria was named mayor, and uh, he gave his first speech last year as the mayor in the State of the City address. Uh, He did that uh, notoriously from a library because he couldn't get in front of the traditional crowd, and this year he couldn't get in front of the traditional crowd and did it. uh, Was it the convention center, uh, Andrea? Yeah, it was the convention center. Yeah, some some great photos from Adriana uh, Heldes of both that and the governor was in town. So obviously he talked about a lot of different things, uh, policing, uh, roads. He's got a lot of things to talk about with roads. But he said the highest on San Diegans' list of worries and what residents talk to him about more than any other issue by far is what we're obviously concerned about almost more than any other issue, and that is homelessness. And 
I thought he had a interesting way of framing it. I wanted to go through Andrea. So first, the let's run this section. So this was uh, Mayor Todd Gloria talking about um, all of the, the problems with homelessness, and then he did this. While the complaints about homelessness are common, the proposed solutions to it are wildly divergent and frequently contradictory. At one end of the spectrum are residents demanding that we criminalize homelessness. On the others are those decrying any enforcement of our laws against setting up camp on the sidewalk. It's this kind of conflict that has historically paralyzed leaders on this crisis. So that's, I think, a really good way to put it, right? I mean, that's the dichotomy that we look at all the time, where there's the, yeah, there are people who, I think if you asked them and, got, and you know, gave them truth serum and boiled it down, they'd be like, yeah, they need to be shipped out and put into, like, concentration camps in the desert or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole other group of people that are like, no, they, it is absolutely uh, unreasonable and, and un, unethical to, to dislodge them from their camps on the streets or in the parks or in the canyons or something. And that dichotomy really is driving it. Now, I listened closely on the recording and tried to follow like what his answer to that is or what his sort of middle ground sort of solution is to that. And he kind of just listed a lot of the different things that he's you know, been working on, permanent supportive housing, more and better shelters and, and more effective outreach to get people into, into temporary and permanent housing. Um, and then, uh, but he really did drive home that he's going to keep handy the tool to force them out of those encampments, right? So here was another section where he kind of just drove that home. But let's be clear. In no circumstance is it compassionate to let people live on the sidewalk. No one wants that. You don't want that, and I don't want that. So... I mean, that's pretty clear that, that there's still going to be these kind of abatements or, or sweeps, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, like we kind of see that maybe when you're, you know, driving on, on the road and you see police officers kind of removing people from, from the streets. Yeah. I think the reference that he did make that was interesting, he talked about the, uh, the outreach effort that they did at the beginning of the summer, a real expansive compassionate you know there were tense we talked about that with the council president right shawnee lo rivera yeah you've it mentioned sounds, that a couple of times like that that was so great like why are we not doing this yeah every day? Wh- <laughs> why did they stop if some they're always talking about how effective it was and then they're like and you're like okay well wh- why <laughs> where did it go so i i guess um that'll be part of it but then he said something i think that i found just completely jarring uh and it was about, uh, he, he gave a little history of mental illness in the state, about how hospitals and homes for people who suffered from severe mental illness uh, and challenges with regard to their, um, their ability to function because of it, that he gave a little bit of history, and then he said this. The result has been decades of homelessness with jails and emergency rooms becoming the de facto housing for those who are too mentally ill to care for themselves. It is long past time for our society to come to grips with this enormous problem and actually do something. 
That's why I'm working with City Attorney Mara Elliott to use conservatorships in cases of extreme mental illness among our unsheltered neighbors. But the fact is that current state law on conservatorship is too restrictive. So this year, I'm pushing for state action on conservatorships so that people who cannot help themselves aren't left vulnerable to the dangers of life on the streets. I mean, wow, right? Yeah, that, uh, I was like, wait, what? And I will say, like, <laughs> I've only come to know about conservatorships through, like, Britney Spears. Britney Spears, right? <laughs> and then, like, also um, that movie on Netflix, um, I Care A Lot. Have you seen right. it? Right. Yeah, which right. is, like, <laughs> terrible, terrible. So, I don't know. It was crazy. Yeah, so let's put a little context on this. So, the... State Senator Scott Weiner a few years ago passed a, a law that said that a county can try to set up a five-year pilot program to examine whether there are more circumstances where you can, you know, basically a court can assign somebody to, to, to oversee the daily life of any person who's struggling with mental limitations or illnesses and the city or the county of San Diego decided not to participate in that, to be clear. This last week with his budget, Governor Newsom uh, talked about what the LA, des- LA Times described as a far-reaching overhaul of the state's conservatorship, a change uh, laws that a change that could force some unhoused individuals into treatment. Newsom, this is from the LA Times, who refused to offer additional details, said that the topic of removing someone from the streets, quote, requires us to be a little bit uncomfortable, but that the state needs, quote, a few more tools to help those that clearly cannot help themselves. I mean, really extraordinary, because one of the things that people like Todd Gloria, who also pushed for this law change, have always said is that homelessness itself is not criminalized, right? that it's not illegal to not have a house. Now, people get in trouble for blocking sidewalks or for illegal lodging or for drug use or other things that happen, but the actual act of being homelessness or homeless isn't criminalized. I think in a way, this is a step in that direction. I'm not sure I'm opposed to that or whatever. I, I'm just saying like it does feel like this is saying you're struggling so much that we are going to de facto put you under the control of somebody else that might mean that you're you are in essence incarcerated in a mental health facility right yeah i mean it it definitely feels that way so fascinating discussion uh, for the mayor to get involved in as uh, again uh, we do not have the details about exactly what that would look like the extent to which it would be used but um, but this is this would be a, a big new tool I think in that in that dichotomy of of do you let people compassionately live on the streets or do you force them all off and um, and then how do you how do you force them all off when there's limited options, limited housing and housing affordability, as, as we all know, is so strained right now. 
just a really interesting thing to bring up in the state of city now again there was a lot of other topics discussed in the state of the city address are, are there any any other points that stood out for you i mean he talked about we're going to talk about the the midway sports arena development he talked about that for affordable housing he he mentioned uh, implementing the police oversight commission and trying to find a balance between civil liberties but also highlighted he he says a lot of crime that's going on that's intolerable in the city uh anything else stand out for you um, I think, well, one, you know, he, he mentioned the uh, sports arena, <laughs> but there's yeah. like no acknowledgement of the lawsuit, <laughs> um, which right. like, obviously is not, I, you know, like it's not a thing to bring up at that time. Maybe. I don't know. I think it is. I think that they they were handed a serious blow. Right. Like they they their entire plan. They had three things underway. You know, they had. They had done a new community plan and the new zoning. They had, um, you know, done the 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 land that they own. They had let the leases renew or, or not renew. And then they had done the height limit. And they all needed all three to go forward for their big redevelopment. And one of them has been really <laughs> dealt a blow. And he didn't do anything, I don't think, at all to outline what he supports or doesn't support for the ballot, right? Like whether it was to redo this or whether it was to change the... We talked to Shawnee Lo Rivera, for example, you and I did, mm -hmm. about the trash uh, tax. So right now it is illegal for the city to charge a special fee for trash collection. And he wants to get rid of that legal prohibition. He doesn't necessarily want to raise the tax yet or the fee yet, but he wants to do that. Does, does the mayor? I don't know. Does yeah. the mayor want to raise taxes for transit? I don't know. Does he want to raise taxes for parks and, and libraries? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what was interesting from the speech was things he left out, you know. But also, um, he did mention something about, um, you know, decreasing the time that it takes to update a community uh, plan, right? And so yeah. that'll be interesting to see because obviously like th those tend to be really long processes. It includes a lot of community feedback. So it'll be interesting, you know, what that plan is to cut down that time and what that'll impact. So um, our great intern, a Voice of San Diego intern, Julia, published a story this week about a complaint that left the city of Chula Vista with a $16,000 bill. Now, it kind of sounds like a little bit of money when you're talking about a city, right? Like for an individual, a $16,000 bill is crazy. Um, but for a city, yeah. it's what? Chump change? I'm guessing. <laughs> it's, it's not even a rounding error. Yeah, it's very yeah. small, even for a small city like Chula Vista. But um, it, it's, it's enough. It's enough to, you know, somebody got a, a check out of it. Yeah. Right. And it's enough to, you know, make residents feel a, a certain way, I'm sure, or anyone who, you know, wants to know why, why this bill was even something in the first place. But um, so what was interesting was what the complaint was. And uh, what happened here is that uh, Councilman John McCann uh, filed a complaint against Mayor Mary Casillas-Salas um, 
you know, basically wanted an outside investigation on an incident that occurred at a restaurant in Chula Vista where the mayor called him uh, a gringo at least two times, he said in his complaint. Um, And, you know, his argument was that she used that word to, you know, um, make him feel bad. And, And he felt it was a form of discrimination and harassment. He didn't feel like it was in line with you know, the city city policies. And so he wanted that investigated. And that's where that $16,000 $16, bill comes in. All right. Now, I've been called a gringo a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let's let's put this into context. So yeah. they were at a, they, they were at a restaurant. Yeah. So there was a, a press conference, right? So it was like a city press conference about a new restaurant opening up. Um, in the part of of the the city that's had like a lot of new restaurants open up and so it followed a press conference and then um, everyone just kind of like ate at that restaurant and they weren't sitting together Uh, the mayor was sitting with someone else and he kind of just came up you know while she was eating said hi whatever it was like pretty cordial and then he mentioned something about how the food was too spicy for him and she said, oh, that's because you're a gringo or s- something like that. And, um, you know, he, f- he felt that it was um, a form of harassment. I mean, uh, as someone who's been called gringo a few times, uh, I think I can see a case where you, you might feel, especially if you're not very close with somebody or if you're in an awkward situation, that you might be... You might feel a little bit what we might call othered, right? You might be, you know, set apart or uh, otherwise feel feel like you're not part of a group, like uh, left separate. But um, he, his complaint was literally that it was a form of discrimination. Yeah. Do you think he was truly hurt? I mean, I think he. I don't. I, it feels more like I agree with you. It's kind of like this other thing. Um, so I I don't know what the root of his reasoning for why he wanted to file this complaint. But other than that, he mentioned that, you know, it, it's a term she's used other times, not directed at him, but just in general. And he doesn't find it to be a term that's, you know, appropriate. Um, I yeah. mean, it's an, it's an interesting word. Like I would probably never use it but um it it is it can be controversial i think and and obviously like it's used to describe like a foreigner that's not you know latino of latin descent um but i think it really depends on like whether you have a relationship with that person um or kind of like the tone that you're using it in and the situation that you're using it in i think can really um you know contribute to like how it gets across to that other person um, mm-hmm. but it's interesting because I, I just wanted to see like what's been written about the term gringo and like, you know, what people had to say about it. And I found a couple stories of like, you know, people addressing like why it's controversial, but I thought it was interesting because, um, some of these like, uh, online organizations that focus on, on like Latin culture and Latinx culture, um, they use gringo all the time in headlines. Like it was something like, uh, the gringo Grammys, um, or, yeah. you know, this gringo, da, da, da. And it was so interesting. So I don't know, it's a, it's a tricky word, but I mean, the outside law firm that the city hired to kind of like investigate this essentially said that, you know, it was inappropriate, but it didn't rise to the level of harassment or discrimination in that, like, it didn't impact him any further in like doing his job after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. 
Except now they have $16,000 less to spend on something else. Right. So, I mean, and again, it's a small, small bill for a city. But, I mean, obviously, some people on, you know, we shared the story on our Instagram and some people had some thoughts on <laughs> on whether that was a good use of city dollars. <laughs> well, Julia, that was uh, one of her last, if not last, stories for us as an intern. She did a great job. She's, uh, Julia, watch out for her uh, byline over the years. She's going to be great, I think. Okay, podcast fans, I sometimes I am known as somebody who uh, promises things that I want to do but never actually does them. But this time I did. I wrote the piece about the history of the sports arena Midway area uh, and why the city came to own the land there. And uh, it's gotten more feedback than any piece I've done, I think, in the last few years. And thank you for everybody who said nice things. And even thank you to those who have sent said some not nice things, but uh, it's been really interesting. I'm going to work on a little follow-up, gathering up all the different feedback. I actually heard from a tremendous number of people who lived in what we call Frontier. Uh, so just some background. Um, the city of San Diego owns land around Sports Arena and around uh, the area around it, uh, the Dixie Line Lumber, the, uh, the all the, the shops around there. There's a lot of land that city and the city came to own that um, in a really interesting way. Basically, get so this was one of the more interesting parts of the story. The, the city of San Diego in 1939-40-41 had an incredible housing crisis. Like, we have a housing crisis now, a lack of supply compared to what demand there is. In other words, there's always people here creating jobs, but the housing never has caught up. Well, then it was... It was wild. There's tens of thousands of people coming into San Diego every month in like 1940 because the defense industry is just building up a ton of uh, aircraft manufacturing, all these defense um, preparations. And they're coming in here and they cannot find a place to live. And Mission Valley, for example, was just strewn with camps, just camps as far as you could see. Uh, poverty as people like, you know, their kids ran between the camps, uh, people living in their in their old cars, uh, the the streets, just encampments everywhere. And it, it was eerily similar to the way that we're talking about it now with all the encampments and homeless uh, individuals living around. And the federal government basically uh, intervened and said, you need to build housing. And the city was like, nah. And they said, you need to build more housing. We'll give you money. Nah. And finally, the federal government just intervened and said, we are going to build housing. And they built a vast uh, development in Linda Vista. And then they built one in the sports arena midway area. So that area had been, you know, uh, a giant sort of floodplain. The San Diego River went back and forth in that area. The federal government finally tamed it and put the channel that we now know in. And that opened up that land, a dusty sort of weird area, flat area for development. Um, and the federal government decided to put 3,500 homes there. It was a whole neighborhood. <laughs> it was wild. Uh, they had three schools. They had rec centers. They had uh, churches, tons of churches. And, you know, I've, Andrea, I've heard a lot of stories over the years as a journalist of neighborhoods that have been, like, hurt by freeways or by lack of services or infrastructure 
but I had never learned of one that was eradicated, yeah. just, just completely eradicated. And uh, learning about this neighborhood there and why it was eradicated, why it never took hold as a neighborhood, and why there's now a sports arena and a Target there, I, it was profoundly discomforting. Like, I just – I. I'm still unsettled every time I drive by. I, I, as I said in the story, I'll never look at Sports Arena again the same. Yeah. So, so why why is it that you know we don't have this like thriving community? Like, why was it just removed? Well, I think it's eighty percent racism and twenty percent they wanted people to to rent homes elsewhere for more. <laughs> uh, I, I I mean that's the best. So I think. Again, so there's this housing crisis. The federal government intervenes and builds this development. It's, it's as a federal project, it's integrated, which means that people of color can live in these places. And why is that interesting? Well, it's because around that time, from the 1913 to 1960s, there was some pretty severe housing discrimination against people of color and, and against uh, Jewish people and, and lots of different people. The, and the, the, the restrictions were overt, like in Point Loma, and this was, this was really hard to look at, and in Point Loma, Loma, Loma Portal or Plumosa Park, where these homes were developed up on the hill in Point Loma, there were advertisements, and they're so easy to find, that just say, like, you should move here because we're not going to let crap get built around you, and we'll only ever sell these homes and these lots to people of Caucasian descent. And it was, you know, that was dramatic. And, and I think that um, you, you can find that all over the place. And, and so as the federal government's building this 3,500-unit development, they run into a vicious backlash during the war. This is 1943. You know, the Nazis are going crazy in Europe. The, the, the war in the Pacific is, is awful and deadly. And... The federal government wants to build these homes, and Point Loma just uh, is is furious. They send dozens of telegrams to their congressmen in Washington, and they say that you've got to stop this development. You can't let it come up the hill toward us. What they all agreed, and this was another fascinating thing, is that the development would not connect to Point Loma, to Plumosa Park. And that, in fact, there would be a, a no man's land between them, that you would, they would not connect streets, they wouldn't connect sidewalks, they wouldn't, it would be a separate, completely segregated world. And yet it was right there. And so the whole, the, the, from that moment on, it was set that it was not considered part of Point Loma and the neighborhood. And that lack of connection actually made it a uh, an othered neighborhood it was a and and it was referred to pretty consistently after that as a slum and when you look up the definitions of what they used to define a slum there was one reference to arrests but the rest of the references were to that they don't pay a lot in rent that the very, the very fact that it was an affordable place to live was itself an indication that it was a slum. And the, the fact that it doesn't generate a lot of taxes for the city was itself 
uh, an indication that it was a slum. And that word slum was what they kept using. And so for decades, the city was determined to kind of get rid of it. And, and then by 1962, they did, and, they, and the city secured all the land and evicted the last 256 families that were there. And I, I compare it a lot to Linda Vista. I ended up riding my bike around Linda Vista and doing a little tour to understand. And Linda Vista had the very, almost the exact same type of neighborhood, a rec center. You might know it as Skate World, um, you know, this, this uh, building that... Uh, became Skate World. Uh, um, that was a rec center for that development. Tons of, of the churches there were, were built in the 40s. Uh, and a lot of the housing that was still there was still, or that was built then, was still there. And I think the difference is that it, uh, th people who lived there were, were able to make the case that they should be allowed to buy the homes that they were in and, and go from there. And then, but the city was, was super determined to eviscerate and, and eventually eradicate the um, frontier neighborhood. And when they took that land, they cast about trying to find like a Disneyland or a SeaWorld that they might be able to put there. And they ended up with a sports arena. And, and it, you know, I, I think besides the racism that was so overt, the thing that shocked me the most is that I always assumed that that area developed as like a, like a, you know, an accident of history, you know, because of the automobiles, like all these strip malls, just like in a lot of parts of Western United States, that that's the way. And I think what shocked me is that that's not how it developed. Like we, we killed a neighborhood that was there so that we could develop it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, anyone who goes there, right? Like I, I mentioned all my favorite stores are in that area. So yeah. I always go there. And it is like to anyone who doesn't know this history, it, it's weird to look at. And, and you're like, what what happened here? Something weird happened here. But you don't really think about, you know, you don't know about this history and think about how there used to be a thriving community of people there. Yeah. It was uh, it was the frontier neighborhood. Um a lot of people remember a frontier drive-in that was put there later, but I, I still find it amazing that there's like this ghost. Like it, they, they changed the name of the street from Frontier Street to Sports Arena Boulevard. I mean, this the entire neighborhood was just just disappeared. It's just like we don't want to think about it anymore. We, we, don't, we just want it to go. And I think what's really troubling is there's a reason Linda Vista is so diverse, right? And... It's because this, as it started as a, as a federal housing project, it allowed people of color to live there. And then when there was, you know, after Vietnam, some efforts to resettle refugees from Asia, that that, that was a place that was already accepting of, of a lot of different um, people. And so Linda Vista, in a way, is kind of an, uh, an island of diversity in, in north of the eight. And that that to think that that existed in the sports arena midway area, but it was very clearly erased, and like I don't know. I mean, it's just it's hard to look at the city and and see such a stark and obvious effort to make sure that this place was segregated as as harshly as it was and and now to think about how much effort they have to go through to try to make it an affordable coherent neighborhood again and it was <laughs> it already was and you could have updated the buildings you could have uh you know it didn't have to be 
demolished and and replaced with what you know what they the dixie line lumber which by the way what a name for something that's there but um so i yeah i don't know i i i've been thinking about it still a lot i don't i don't know why it got to me so much but it really did yeah well i'd love i'd love to hear more stories and i'm glad that people connected with you that you know people that used to live there because they would be awesome to hear more about what it was like there and yeah, there was a so I I attribute a lot of it, and I should make that clear to a, a, a reader story from 1992, and in that there was a guy named Bill Fontana, uh, who had been quoted by the reader 30 years ago almost, and um, I looked for him. I was just like, oh, I'm gonna try to find this guy, and I found him, and I called him, and I'm like, Is this Bill Fontana? And he's like, Yeah, and I, I said. <laughs> Uh, are you the one who lived in Frontier and you quoted in the reader 30 years ago? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, wow. I, I didn't say, like, you're alive. <laughs> but, but you know, I talked to him for a while about how he said, yeah, it was a diverse neighborhood. And, you know, it, it, he used the word Caucasian and minorities. He said the Caucasians and minorities got along really great. And then he said something really fascinating. He said, I think it made me a better person to grow up in a neighborhood like that. And it changed and it made me, you know, um, I had experiences and where I was able to do things after that that was that was um, that were affected by that. And we all really stuck together and it was a good, coherent and fun community. And that's overwhelming. I heard from an older guy in southeastern San Diego whose family was forced to move to southeastern San Diego after the, the neighborhood was closed. Um, I, and I've, I've heard from so many interesting people. Um, so yeah, it's it's sometimes history is uh, really upsetting, but also just something you can't you can't stop learning about when you when you get into something like this. Um, so check that out. You'll never see sports arena. You may never see sports arena differently or the same way again. You can. Uh, it's it's pretty easy to find on the Google, and I'll do an update with some of the people I've talked to. I also requested from the archivist. Uh, a report the city produced in the early 60s about why um, it needed to be eradicated. And so I'm, I'm eager to read what they were spe uh, specifically saying. But uh, COVID's made that hard, too. Uh, some of the archivists are, are, are dealing with a lot of things, too. So it's, it's wild how... Um, uh, but it's also... And also shout out to your former employer, the Union Tribune, um, they maintain an archive of the old Evening Tribune, the Sun, and the Union newspapers that are, you know, if you're a print subscriber, you can get for free access to. And I just, I, I wasted, not wasted, I spent so many hours looking at those. And just to read the stories from like the 30s and 40s, what they were dealing with and how they described things and you know, how they were afraid of communists and Nazis and, um, you know, people. It was just, uh, it was a trip. And, and uh, anytime you dig in, you're going to learn something that's both disturbing but fascinating. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded again in my garage and in the studio trying to get through this January my goodness, can we reset the year? 
keep up with all our stories this year with the Morning Report, our most popular newsletter. Get it at vost.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrea Lopez Villafaña is our managing editor. This show is produced this week by Adriana Heldes uh, and Adam Greenfield. Thank you for stepping up. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.